0: one or two of you will know so much of what I was saying was covered this morning that I did a hasty slip away at lunchtime and rewrote what I was going to say. So <laughs> I, I have to make two apologies. Number one is it's not timed and number two it's not rehearsed. Uh, so I'm not quite sure how it's going to come out. But, um, I find the whole question of a canon very problematic. First of all because it is a necessity prescriptive. And therefore, secondly, it depends on what choices are made. And this immediately poses the question, of course, on what basis do we make these choices? Um, and this moves on to more questions. Within the context of teaching English literature, which is what we're here about today, and I will be concentrating in this on the poetry, what are the best poems? And that is, which poems offer the most opportunity for in-depth textual analysis, what opens students' eyes most readily to the quality of good writing. And if you are opening um, students' eyes to what makes a good poem, regardless of whether it's First World War or any other, you will choose your canon in a particular way. But this again leads on to the confusion these poems cannot be isolated from their context. All a poet can do today is war. And if we're warning about war, necessarily we are talking about the war about which we are warning. We're talking about the qualities of that war, what were its characteristics. And obviously the student must understand the matter that is being written about. So we're moving away from literature at once. Or are we? I don't know. And in the case of this war, that must include the dates on which poems were written. And I would like to recommend, at this point, Dominic Hibbert's new anthology, which has just come out, um, in which he tries to date, as far as possible, he and John Onions, the poems that are included in the anthology, in which he arranges things purposely in the order in which they are written, that is the guiding line of the book. What is the canon for one period is not the canon for another. An anthology compiled, for example, in 1914 would be very different from one compiled in 1919 or later. And so we come to another set of questions which centre on two things. Number one, what is the purpose of the poem? Has it a purpose at all? And number two, what is the availability of poems? You have to depend, if you're an anthologist or a critic, number one, on the the poems that have been written. It's no good having a poem in somebody's head, which is absolutely sublime if it's not been written down. And secondly, and even more important, because this is where the anthologist draws from, the poems that have been published. And if you're compiling an anthology in nineteen twenty, you won't have, you may have two poems of Rosenberg's, you won't have any more because his collected works didn't appear until 1922. And I think much the same is true of Owen, is it not John there would be very little on which to draw in nineteen twenty? So then you look at the purpose. If you assemble your canon in nineteen fourteen, Your purpose is to encourage young men to the colours. We didn't have conscription until January 1916, and one of the purposes of the poets, whether it was organised by the War Office or whether it was just what people felt like, was to encourage young men to enlist, to justify Britain's entry into the war, and to talk about the rape of Belgium, poor little Belgium, to justify what we were doing. So you have this hypothetical anthology of 1920, which begins to show the horror of war, because, of course, we have been through that horror, but it would only depend on what poet you can draw upon, what is available to you. You don't know, at that point, what is in hiding. So you take what is there, and you assess it for its quality, because, after all, you are assembling a canon of poetry. And is it possible, or even desirable, to separate this need for the best choir poetry from the current mood in response to the war. In other words, should war poetry, of necessity, carry some sort of message of whatever nature that message is? And if it should, what should that message be? And again, we have our hypothetical anthologist working in March 1918. He's been through the Somme, but we are facing the one point in the war where we very nearly were defeated. We have Haig with his Backs to the Wall message. It is unthinkable that somebody could publish a poem at that point in the war, which spoke of the disabusement, the disillusionment, the horror of war, in a way which turned us away from what we were fighting for. That, however, is very different from the situation which would have pertained in 1930. Here we have people who had sat in the trenches and said, when we go home, we will be kings. They were returning to a land fit for heroes. What did they return to? First of all, apathy, widespread apathy. People didn't want to know. It's a story which recurs in each war. People will tell you of the Iraq war now, the Vietnam war. They don't want to know. I don't know if it's guilty, this lack of experience, or what it is, but they don't want to know. They returned to a betrayal of promises. All that they thought that would happen if they went to war as heroes, if they were prepared to sacrifice themselves, what happened to those promises? In the case of the First World War, they returned to mass unemployment, ex-soldiers selling matches, postcards on street corners, and a nation grieving from the bottom of its soul, a nation with broken spirits and minds of the men themselves <coughs> and broken hearts of the people who'd been at home. And they have the twin pulls. On the one hand, there's the pull of forgive and forget. Come on, move on, forget it, it's over, let's get on to the next thing. And then you have the sort of attitude of mind that you see in the work of Gilbert Franco, I will never forget. I cannot forget. Why should I forget? I know what I suffered and I know what other men have suffered. And continue to suffer. Well, As you can see, we've, we've moved away from the canon of literature already. And so we ask the question which has been asked this morning, should war poetry be taught as history, as sociology? Should it be pointing to the idea that this was a war of lions led by donkeys? And if we do, how far down the line do those donkeys go? Does it include all the officer class or not? I was quoting the other day um, when I was talking about Rebecca West and the film The Return of the Soldier. I don't know if any of you saw it. But there's a scene in that in which a young Subleton is having tea with his girlfriend in the tea house and as he gets up to leave he passes a table where there's a, a, a private sitting with his girlfriend and as the young passes the private leans back and says coward leading from the, from the back or words to that effect. Well, somehow that didn't ring quite true to me and after I watched the film I went home and I got Rebecca West's book down from my shelf and the line is not there. And this was an example of sociological distortion of the war. It becomes, it has become at times in the past, an aspect of class warfare. I think people who follow down that road forget that Wolferdone's secrets as soon were subalterns, and that subalterns had a higher casualty rate than any other group in the front line. Going offside at a tangent, what difference did it make to be a subaltern to the poetry that they were writing? These were men who were responsible for other men. It was not a responsibility that was shared by either Gurney, or Isaac Rosenberg, or by David Jones. Were Siegfried Sassoon and Wilfred Owens seeking out because of their personal responsibility, because of what they had seen as leaders of other men? Rosenberg didn't have that responsibility. He's spoken of as an anti-war poet. I can never quite see that myself. Um, Of course, any man serving in the line must of necessity... Anti war. You couldn't possibly go through the experiences of war and come out in favour of it. But how do you interpret what you saw? And what do we have in Rosenberg? He saw death, arbitrary death, pointless death. As he says, returning, we hear the larks, death could have dropped from the dark as easily as song, but song only dropped. And what does he write about in that poem about joy? about beauty, the beauty of heights of night, ringing with unseen larks. Of course, Rosenberg doesn't exemplify the standard view of war poetry as allusion to disillusion, we know that, we've heard that today. He had no illusions to shed, he was thoroughly familiar with the rats that came up into the West, into the Whitechapel streets, into the hovels that were his home there. And beyond that, it was not his turn of mind. He wasn't a man who wrote of disillusion. Both he and Gurney expressed in remarkably similar words the wish to survive the war so that they could take all the experiences that they had seen and witnessed and could create from that something that was new about war, but not only about war, about man, about man's mind, about mankind, man's ability to survive. Gurney was going to do it in music. Rosenberg was going to do it probably in a play. In fact, of course, neither of them did. Rosenberg was killed in April 1918 and although Ivor Gurney came back to write some very fine poetry, nevertheless his mind was so clouded that he couldn't go on to fulfil what he had hoped to do. It's very interesting that one of my very favourite poets of the first war, David Jones, didn't write in France his poetry in France, he wrote it very much later and it began as a series of subtitles to illustrations that he had planned and only became later on a book in parentheses. But he went to great lengths to say, this is not a war book. He emphasized it in his introduction. I'm not sure what he meant, but I think he was saying, this is not a book with a message, so don't look for one. He saw it, as he saw all art, as a sacramental act. The act of creating something which stood for something beyond itself. And in order to do this, he drew on the rich tapestry of a shared culture, or something that we all understood, if we had read widely enough. He wove his story by pulling in threads from the other experiences of other wars to create, so to speak, an eternal soldier through the generations. And so back to the canon and my anxieties about it. Who is to say that today's canon, our canon, 1907, post-Vietnam, post-Iraq, is the right one? One of the great virtues of the digital archive, um, and perhaps the best that we can hope for in drawing up a canon, is to make material available. We need to dig deeper in order to make more available. We need to go back not only to what is newly written, if we're talking about war poetry, the, poetry of the, current, the poems of the current war, but into what was written as the earlier war, which has got lost. And that, I think, was the purpose of my book, The, Alternative first, the Voices of Silence, The Alternative Book of First World Poetry. I was very anxious to show that there was very much more poetry written than we thought we knew about. Charles Carrington, um, who survived the war and wrote about it, believed passionately, as has been mentioned today <coughs> several times, that the great poets, so to speak, of the first war were not typical of the, of the men who were writing poetry. There was very, very much more. What changes have happened? Well, interpretations of history, the need to re-warp something which is warped in one direction, to overemphasize it, to warp it back in another. Changing sensibilities I think are very important. David Jones lamented the fact that because of the current sensibilities of readership, his publishers wouldn't allow him to put any four letter words into the mouths of his soldiers. He thought this was a great distortion because it was, to them, it was as he said, they were like blessings. They came out of these mouths, not as swear words, but as blessings. I want to read you one poem, which I think would not have found any place in a, in a war poem, in an anthology until very recently, um, recent years, and that is William Golding. This, in a post-Patricia Cornwall age, is now quite acceptable to us. But imagine reading this if you had a son out of the front in 1916. It's called The New Trade. In the marketplace they have made a dolorous new trade. Now you will see in the fierce nap of the light, piled hideously to sight, dead limbs of men bronzed in the overseas, bomb rent from elbows and knees, torn feet that would, unwearied by harsh loads, have tramped steep moorland roads, torn hands that would moulded explicitly rare things for God to see. And there are eyes there. Blue like blue dove's wings, black like the Libyan kings, grey as before dawn river's willow stirred, brown as a singing bird. But all stare from the dark into the dark, reproachful tense and stark, eyes heaped on trays, and in broad baskets there, feet, hands, and ropes of hair, in the marketplaces, and women buy, naps of glares. Hawkers cry, fat men rub hands. Oh God, oh just God, send plague, lightnings, make an end. William Golding had a particular hatred of the people at home who were making a fortune out of the war. Similarly, who in 1916, in the late summer after the horrors of the Somme, have allowed themselves to publish in any other than a pacifist magazine where it appeared, this poem, The Pacifist, Thou art the disillusioner, thy words are desolate winds, and jagged spurs of rock, Whereon they urge the frigate of our pride to cast herself, How cruel is thy blade to strip the sword of glory, Leaving steel naked, and wounds, undecked of laurels, bare. O still small voice, the louder roars the world, Come, more clear thou comest, and more terrible, that was written by a man called Physic who was a conscientious objector in prison for his objection. One thing I would say with conviction that whatever this canon is, wherever we draw our line, and I suggest we can't draw one anywhere, it must not distort. And there has been a danger in this. First of all, that all-war poetry is necessarily the poetry of protest, or earlier, that all-war poetry is necessarily patriotic. But something has to be done to be decided. We can be too broad-minded, we can teach it as cultural history so that the whole thing is watered down. We can be too narrow, in which case, which narrow line to be followed? It's all questions, I think. I find it very difficult to find Mm -hmm. any answers. If I ask it myself, where do I select the canon? I have to ask myself, why do you select that? What is in your mind as you select it? What pressures are you subject to that you're perhaps not aware of that goes for that selection? As I said, the best I think we can do, and that's evading the question completely, is to make it available, as it is on this web, and I hope increasingly will be taken up. Uh, Just to finish, I'd like to make the case for one poem, which I would like to make available. Um, It's a limerick. I know a blithe blossom in blighty, whom you, I afraid would call flighty. For when zeps are about, she always trips out, in a little black crepe to sheen?